I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. This is our 50th podcast. We've been at this for two years now, and we're so glad you're here with us. Our feature today is Chicago poet Carlos Compion. He's a poet, teacher, activist, publisher, and editor of March of Razo Press. He's widely read and has a lot to say that you're going to enjoy listening to. Then, we'll be paying tribute to Sam Shepard, a great American writer who recently passed away. He's best known as a playwright, but we'll be sharing some of his poetry and short fiction. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our featured poet today from Chicago is Carlos Compion. He is a poet, teacher, activist, publisher, editor of March Abrazo Press, a small press that has a much longer life than many small presses. And he's authored several books of poetry. And I'm real happy to be talking to you today, Carlos, because you got a lot of interesting things to say. Well, I appreciate being with you here today. Um, so you, I, all I can say, Charlie, is that we miss you. You're over in Vermont. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's when we met, uh, when I moved out there to the Chicago area. And, right. and you're out there on the scene, you know, all over the place. Uh, well, I was in Vermont last summer, and uh, uh, my, my heart is there again this, this year because you, you, you can't get it out of your blood once you go to the Green Mountains, right? It's there. Yeah, it's fabulous. Um, well, you know, we've we got so many climatic, traumatic, climatic things going on. And um, a term I never really heard, and maybe you had heard it before, was the term polar vortex. So that, that term uh, surprised me. It sounded, it, it sounded so, you know, wow, uh, scientifically over, overwhelming, the polar vortex. And when I heard that weatherman back in uh, 2014, um, the beginning of 2014, saying, brace yourselves, uh, people, you know, the polar vortex is headed this way. And so um, being a Chicago teacher, you know, we rarely ever uh, close down school for the weather. And it has to be really bad. Uh, I mean, the Catholic schools close down for any reason, but the public schools stay open because, you know, we are feeding people and, uh, you know, keeping people off the street. So we closed down in lieu of um, teaching that class that day, teaching classes, I wrote this short little poem and uh, inspired by my mentor, old friend, you know, Carlos Cortez, who wrote mm. a poem, Out of Work Blues, which was uh, you know, roughly based as a, his idea of a blues piece. But so anyway, I, I, it goes like this. Say now. We got that polar vortex blues. It's ruined the streets and it's salt lined my shoes. Now I took off with the car, but I didn't get far. They closed the schools, but not the bars. Yeah, I took off in my car and I didn't get far. My battery froze and so did my toes. I got that polar vortex blues. It's so damn cold. Teachers will be in session way past June. Looks like we're all going to have that polar vortex blues. That's it. And it was written back in 2014, early part of 2014. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, Charlie, you know, it's weird. Some people say winter comes right away. Uh, some people say we we, we're good, we have uh, summers with no, um, oh, you know, it doesn't warm up. We've had these weird, wild climatic swings where it didn't get warm this summer. It rained all summer or it, 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 it winter, it never got cold. The ice never froze. I mean, we're, we're in some real weird wobble times. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I remember last year, I remember we had a foot of snow on Thanksgiving here in Vermont. Exactly. So that's, that's early, right? That, that, that's early. Yeah. That's early even for here. In fact, it, it's really interesting with the mountains because in, in town we had about eight inches and there's this nice little mountain about 10 miles out of town that had two feet. Yeah, microclimates. I mean, yes, yeah, I think that's really what looking yeah. at a lot of microclimates. Um, let me let me read you a short one that um, they made a. That I said they, um, they the, my friend Marcos Raya, who is a muralist and and printmaker, a maverick in the in the Mexican American Mexican Chicano art world. Um, he illustrated this and uh, into a, a broadside, and it's just called the circus and. When my son was was um, just a wee lad, my my wife said, "Let's go to the circus." And I said, "I don't really want to go." And she said, "You have to go." And we went, and um, and I brought along a, a napkin and my trusty ink pen, and on a napkin I wrote this poem while watching the kid and watching the circus. And the circus poem goes like this: A cougar's howl blast out. A brass cornet, matched by blaring bugles, thunderous trombones, plus two marching kettle drums, dum dum dumbing us deaf, as six muscled men carry cudgels, four women wearing less than what's wrapped in ribbon around their lances, bounce freely alongside thirteen elephants that line up, turn, mount, and massage each other. Except gray guys 1 and 13, who represent wrinkled alpha and omega, cosmic pachyderms, possessing the patois of saints amid the frantic pulse of these under-the-big-top idiotics. That's it. Whoa. <laughs> I get the picture, which is a point, you know, you really paint the picture there. Circuses. We're going to be living in a time, I guess, where they're not going to have animals in the circuses pretty soon. You know, they're going to, they're, they're, they're all, you know, we can't have this poor critter locked up in a circus. And, and I can see that point, you know, um, yeah. we're reaching a place where we realize these, these, these animals really don't need to be dragged around the planet on a chain for our entertainment. Yeah. And it's, it probably it's just behind the time. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, it would be really exotic to right. see an elephant. Yeah. You, you didn't watch a special on, on PBS, you know, uh, and know a lot about them and whatever. Yes. So, uh, there's much less reason for it. Much less. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're getting slightly more compassionate as we have less of them around. <laughs> I think you raised a good point. Um, <laughs> Well, but but we're not very compassionate to rats in Chicago and in other parts of the world. <laughs> Never mind. Rat, okay. I, you, you can't come to my yard because I've killed a few. Um, anyway, um, <clears throat> how about um, a question or I can do another poem? Oh, 
Well, you know, um, you're hit, we're hinting at it, and you, you mentioned, I said you, you have one of your posts, sort of survivalist posts this morning, or last night, what? I saw on Facebook, saying that people should learn how to go how to go camping just to really know how to light a fire and, and maybe survive if, if the fundamentals aren't there anymore. Right. I don't know, I've learned how, how far are you into it? I can't tell. Are you really, do you have a closet full of bottled water or? No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> my bed, listen, I have a water bed. I can drink my. <laughs> Imagine, remember the old water beds? Yeah. yeah. Bed, I can rip open my water bed and drink it. I, I asked a, I actually asked a survivalist um, uh, teacher yeah. at a workshop. I said, where can we go if, if all the, you know, flow stops coming out of our pipe? And he said, how far do you live from a swimming pool? And I said, well, he said an indoor swimming pool. I said, oh, oh, oh. he says, go there. Says, wow. Go there because it'll be chlorinated. It'll be cleaned up for all practical purposes. And then you can just boil that. And it's much safer to drink that than trying to fish it out of some stream where a factory's been. Good point. Wow. Well, that's really an interesting idea. Because I would have thought the chlorine would taste so crappy. <laughs> But well, yeah, I guess at least it's yeah. but the point is it's relatively safe. And yeah. Speaking of you know what's what's available to us. Yeah. But anyway, you're surviving. I, I talked to a guy. I just want real quick. I talked to a guy who who said, "Don't worry about finding food in a grid down situation." He said, that "If if you're halfway smart, you're going to see that there's food growing all over the place. Of course, not in the dead of winter. But anyway, he said there's always something to forge." The problem is water, hmm. which I, I do believe. It's a, it's a tough thing. Yeah, and you can't go as long without water. So right. you're really right. weak. And, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's the deal. Um, <clears throat> so um, I'll put a poem. Sure. Um, yeah, we, we have, um, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of people who, who like Mexican food, you know, I, I guess. And... Um, I I, <laughs> I think I, so. Yeah. yeah. I used to say I used to say um, um, that every Mexican restaurant, for good or bad, is some sort of some sort of Mexican consulate. You know, you get you get you get your introductory uh, experience. You know, Taco John's, Taco Bell, and a few other those places don't count. But right. Um, so anyway, I wrote this poem uh, recently. This is a very recent poem. In fact, uh, this month, and uh, it's gone through a couple of edits. And it includes a, a traditional word, a Mexican Aztec word for the word uh, as, a, as a tear, that we would cry as a tear. Mm -hmm. And the word is uh, Ishayot. And um, you, you'll hear a couple of other Mexican words. You know, the word for the mortar and pestle that we have is probably the oldest kitchen tool from uh -huh. paleo times, right? Early, early times. Uh, uh, made of volcanic rock. That word is molcajete. And I'll use that word in the poem. I'll use the word, uh, some Spanish words. Now, you just heard two Aztec words, molcajete and ishayot. And, uh, but then there are other words uh, in Spanish that I threw in here, um, like asilla and ancho, which are two types of chilies. Um, so anyway, let me read you the poem, 
it uh, is based on spotting a, a, a lone dark green pumpkin seed on the ground and uh, on my kitchen floor, actually. And it's called Seed Tear. Seed Tear. Largima Semilla. Single each chayot escapes autumn's pumpkin flesh. Crisp when snapped beneath teeth. A lone seed tear of harvests past. Found on the ground, one uncaptured. Unlike Basia y Ancho, chili pod soldiers who were sacrificed under mesquite flame and cook's knife. Then a handful of dried green seeds blended and left to soak overnight in clay bowl, unmasked in spring water, are added to morning's melted honey chocolate, thin white sliced islands of onion, pink garlic cloves, dashed pebbles of cumin, coriander, and salt, all compliments when crushed in seasoned volcanic molcajete to swirl and bubble as mole sings its dark song. And the word mole uh, yeah. is oftentimes spelled M-O-L-E, but it should be spelled M-O-L-L-I to get a closer oh. approximation to the word. Because when I first saw the word M-O-L-E, I was saying mole, who wants to eat mole? <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so food poems are always, you know, I think uh, good to do as a introductory to a people's culture. You know, you get to learn something about them. Um, yeah, something we, something we all have in common. I know, I know one thing, I had, I had a personal rule when living in the Chicago area. When I went someplace else, I did not go to the local Mexican restaurant. <laughs> no matter how much people recommended it, I figured, nah. Nah. It's, well, it's not going to be up to Chicago. <laughs> we, we used to go to the El Presidente restaurant uh, over on Ashland, and we'd bring people out of towners there because it was, you know, we could show up at one in the morning there and it'd still be open. The 24 hour place is always uh, raises eyebrows. Why are they still open? Anyway. Um, yeah, they roll up the they roll up the uh, uh, sidewalks uh, in some parts of town now, but that we always uh, look for that emergency taco someplace after <laughs> after midnight. Um, so we have uh, yeah we we have uh, a whole bunch of people reading poetry. We had rather I should say a whole bunch of people reading poetry last night in Pilsen. All, lots and lots and lots of readers, and uh, uh, mostly all in Spanish, and. Um, the big controversy that I have been following uh, is that the home of a lot of cultural activity for many a year, uh, a place called Casa Aslan, has now been sold to developers to become apartment buildings. Oh, and, you know, and, and, and there goes, a, 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 what do you call it, an institution uh, that could not stay, keep its doors open as a cultural group. And then, you know, that is, of course, the whole downturn of uh, funding that's going on in this country. And so I, I did write a little poem about it, but, um, you know, I could, it's, uh, you know, one of my kind of uh, uh, commentaries, it's, uh, it's a, it, there's a little bit of, I don't know if you ever were familiar with the place. It, the, the exterior of the building, if you can imagine, was uh, one 
for your listeners. I mean, they could just look and imagine mm -hmm. seeing a building that was replete with uh, iconography symbols of um, of various uh, uh, tribal symbols of the Mexican tribes, and then there was a kind of a a who's who in popularity, uh, ever changing uh, 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 pictures of uh, of different noted historical figures that would greet you at the at the entrance of this building. You know the Cesar Chavez, yeah. the um, <clears throat> the Zapata, and you know stuff like that. Uh, Frida Kahlo, you know all that. Okay, all those girls. Yeah, they would all be at the, at the entrance. So anyway, so the company that had the duty um, uh, to white to uh, to paint over all the murals. The reason why this is so controversial: the building itself was a mural uh, landmark. And now, in the last few months, it has been coated co in gray paint oh, in man. preparation for it becoming a, a condominium. Right. So the the company they hired was a company called Dogs Paint Company, but it's spelled D A W G S. You know that was the dogs. So the poem goes like this. Okay, I'll read it. So it goes: Dogs Paint Company were the guys from the architectural funeral home. Who did away with those murals decades deep in colores mexicano in mexican colors reflecting the historical wizardry of ray patlan marcos raya roberto robert valadez salvador vega and a garden of children and teens who too painted with their hearts and visions during the late 20th century these Chicago geniuses, they painted homages to marginalized migrants and anti-imperialist militants and fearless lovers of their people. Yes, these dogs showed up when 25-gallon canisters and started their day with Dunkin' Donuts and coffee and eagerly rolled away the images of El Che, Sandino Zapata, Cuauhtémoc, Frida Kahlo, Cesar Chavez, Rudy Lozano, Benito Juarez, Comandante Marcos and the ghostly La Llorona. West, they're all gone. All gone under a wave of corporate real estate gray. Those dogs were let out over three stories and soon they reached it to the top, to the bottom and making it acceptable for the new tenants to come in and pay that high rent so they could live near the loop, so they could eat that cheap Mexican food, so they could move in with happy boys and girls from Iowa and learn some Spanish. That same crowd that never had to stand in line for after school summer classes or government surplus cheese and powdered milk, who never had to seek out a translator to get that job filled out or ask for help with naturalization forms written in legalese, that never got lost on the CTA crowd, that never danced on the crowded, a crowded cumbia on Casaslan's salon floor. They're here now, and they're knocking on your door. It's, it's about gentrification, okay? Hey, while we're on issues, uh, you know, I mentioned to you I was reading your books recently, and uh, some of the poems that uh, have something to do with immigration could have been written last week, yesterday, last yeah. night. The, 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 the book I came out in 96 with. Yeah, I know. and you said you you, uh, you have a newer poem that's... Um, yeah. I do, I do, I do. The newer book is from my book called 14 Aprils. Okay. Uh, and um, the poem 
starts out with uh, with an apology to the famous author Carlos Fuentes because he asked a question on on national public television uh, when he was doing his series um, on the history of Mexico. He asked the question, the profound philosophical question, and, and that is, can the enchilada coexist with the hamburger? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, the poem is called, What Do You Call This Place? Or, Can the Enchilada Coexist with a Hamburger? With apologies to Carlos Fuentes. Arizona has been more than Indian lands. Mystical bourgeois Sedona, or freshly painted Phoenix. It's been a giant magnetic vortex for all the snowbirds, retirees, Chicago Cub fans, and the starving families who have suffered seeking solace under a metallic sky, fleeing the desert danger, fleeing the narco war, their farms and ranches ruined by the NAFTA economy. These tensions had been present many years, many years before Tucson or Yuma. These troubles started before the Gadsons purchase. Its roots reach closer to post-war 18. 48 U.S. ratified treaty, keeping Arizona a mere territory in status for half a century. Now I wonder, was it merely because there wasn't enough English speakers? Press one to answer. Yes, when did I fall asleep? Because I can't for the life of me figure out when did all these anti-constitutionalists put down their teacups long enough to become even bigger cheerleaders of fear with their demands to detect and detain all those who might have another language other than English in their brains, especially those who had crossed that southern border, not by a boat. These were never anchor babies, not by a plane, and often not even by car, truck, or bike. Rather, people who walked like their ancestors did far back as seven generations ago. And because of that, I can't believe it's now changed its name to Arianzona. No, I can't believe it's changed its name to Arianzona. That's it. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, that's the role of the poet, man, to point out what's going on and remind so. people. I guess so. I mean, you know, Arizona is, uh, you know, it's 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 a strange place. I mean, it, it, I, I like it in the wintertime. I've been there a number of times. and. But um, <clears throat> it's uh, it's a strange place. Yeah, culturally, it is a yeah. yeah, yeah. Strange. Damn. Um, well, Charlie, I you know I it, 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 I've heard this. I've heard that if you the farther you live from that you grew up, the farther you you grew up away from the Mexican border, the more paranoia you have of Mexicans. Wow. Does that make sense? People who live now, now I, on the other hand, I, people who I knew, a, this is weird. Okay. So I, growing up, I knew a lot of non-Mexicans who could speak Spanish and did business with Mexicans on a daily basis or a weekly basis or traveled into Mexico. And so they weren't all freaked out about Mexicans. Yeah. But then get people who move in from, let's say, Michigan or Illinois or, or Indiana, and they move down to Arizona and they're retirees. Or you know, they they look at Mexicans as a threat. I mean, like, what are they doing here? Well, hell, they only lived there forever. I mean, you know. anyway. 
Yeah, that's that's a really interesting. Uh, nobody's said that. I hadn't heard that before, but it also makes sense, especially if if people are really unfamiliar with the strange or the different, is what seems you know to generally scare people. Yeah. And the folks who are there, that's just life. Hey, you talk to this guy in Spanish, fine. You know, he's Mexican, fine. You know, right, right, no big deal. Right, right. Uh-huh. The, the one thing, one thing I have to say, like I, I, that stands out in my mind it, it, it was growing up. I would go into a to a um, a coffee shop, let's say, and I heard, you know, I was going to have breakfast there one time with a young man, and I heard these guys bantering back and forth in Spanish, and they were like, you know, I could tell they were ranchers. And um, a guy walks in through the door, and they stop their Spanish, and they yell, Emmett, get on over here, man. Have a seat. And, and they said, wait a second. And the guy said, and, the, and, you know, the guy that was Emmett, you know, walks over there. And he's an, he's an Anglo. You know, and, and he sits down with them, and they all start speaking English. And I, then I looked at those guys, and every one of them were Anglos. Now, why were they all speaking Spanish? I, I, there was a waitress they were chatting with. But, you know, she was of Mexican heritage and, and spoke Spanish. But but that fluidity, that capacity to go between two cultures and two languages is how I grew up. And so for me to hear about this monolingual mentality, you know, that people have, I mean, I'm against, I, actually, I'm against people who live in the United States who do speak Spanish, who don't want to learn English, for example. I want them to know English. That's why I became an English teacher in part, in part. Yeah, and I that makes sense. In English. But I also like the fact that English speakers could acquire Spanish and hook into what else is happening in the hemisphere. You know, there's an awful lot of Spanish speakers. Now, I know you're near Quebec. You're not terribly far from the right. French-speaking world. Do you speak any French? No, I had like a year of it in high school, and I remember some words, you know, that kind of thing, but not really. Right. And that, that's that, to me, the first border, if there is a border, is a language border. You know, once we, yeah. you know, it, language is a bridge, you know, and if you don't know it, sometimes it becomes a wall, you know. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Well, you want you want to do one more to wrap us up? Uh, what what type of mood are you in? What do you what do you want? To, <laughs> what, talk to me. What do you want? What do you what type of mood do you want to end this on? Well, I, well, I guess I like it when you tell me things I don't know. So when you come out of a cultural angle that is not deep in my brain, that's very okay. interesting to me. Okay. Right. Okay. Does that does that say anything specific at all? <laughs> okay, no, that helps me. That 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 helps me. Um, um. So this has been. I'm going to read a poem. You know, cryptozoology. When you hear that word, what do you, what comes to your mind? Cryptozoology. Uh, uh, not a hell of a lot. Zoology is like related to animals. Uh, right. I mean, uh, I mean, you guys have Champy up there in Lake, Lake Champlain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know what? Can we tell people what Champy is? Champy is the uh, Loch Ness monster of 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 of, 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 of what? Vermont. Of, of Vermont, yeah. New York. I mean, you know, so. good point. Yeah, yeah. And so I like cryptozoology just because you know I like to be surprised. You know, from time to time, I was you know I lived as a, as a kid in California, and one time I saw an ant the size of a grown man's thumb, and it rather frightened me. You know, to see this thing crawling along the sidewalk, but um, you know, in Texas, we used to have tarantulas everywhere marching around. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chupacabra, the word chupa means to suck, and the cabra is the word for goat. And the, the, the word furlough, that was an interesting word for me growing up, hearing the word furlough, because, um, you know, you get laid off and you get furloughed. 
And so I put these concepts together of a goat-sucking critter, critter that's furloughed. And so this is my poem. It's in, uh, now, you know, the chupacabra was first. I just got to just as a way of introdu introducing this creature. This is a creature that is called the goat sucker. And, of course, you can go on YouTube and see all kinds of references to it. But it, it first made landfall, let's say, in, in, in the island of, uh, of Puerto Rico, in, in Puerto Rico. Okay. So um, okay. Here, here's the poem. Hey, wake up, Moco. It's just after three in the morning, and my Tejano connections have just sent me some direct, impeccable proof from the lower Rio Grande Valley. They've attached a plethora of film footage. It's what we've been waiting for, and the experts expect there is no image and manipulation of this elusive, fast-footed creature now captured on a sheriff's dashboard camera. There's Deputy Zavala and Miss Dulce Mora of Falfurias who have offered indispensable first-hand testimony that even a, a notarized statement has appeared along with the priest from San Benito. Now, I think we're beginning to all agree that this little chicatito, this little chupacabra is no more mito, no more myth than you or me. It's not a fable. It's neither unicorn nor minotaur. It's not some hydra-headed Argus from the days of yore. If this ain't no Monterey mountain hopping flying bruja, some causing some pissant rookie to cry on camera for primer impacto. No, this critter's of crypto, <clears throat> rather, this critter's etymology comes straight from the Spanish with Latin roots. For to suck is to chupar, and cabra is goat. Let's question this numero uno that we've all had. Where in this Diablo come from? Where did it first appear? Was it on the Caribbean island of Borinquen, or do you still say Puerto Rico? Least we forget its initial reports, how this critter dashed about old Richport with the speed of a swiftly pitched baseball until one night when people on some old Hibaro's farm stopped still in their tracks to witness the union of this yet unclassified beast having a liquid meal out of the neck of a skinny goat. It's as if some strange hurricane had flung this crypto species critter out from the bowels of deepest Africa with no documentation, always on furlough from the annals of discovery. This genetic cul-de-sac just appeared all weird dog and, and Komodo dragon-like with bristles and quarry gripping claws, red-eyed and ready to roam offshore. Coño, some pretty scary stuff said a barrio child when the pictures showed up. Yeah, they appeared one day in San Juan's news. Relax though, you're all safe here in Humboldt Park, but just watch out y'all in Hyde Park, porque this sucker would never find enough blood to live on after Chicago's mosquitoes have done their picnicking in July. That's it. <laughs> all right, well, hey, well, you, you answered my request beautifully. All right. With a culturally rich poem. I mean, you know. Yeah. When in doubt, well, go for the weird. Go for the woo-woo. Woo-woo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you, Carlos, and, and hearing your poetry, too. Let me share, share today. And uh, adios, cuídate, and be good, man. We'll talk to you soon. Visiting with Carlos Compion from Chicago. This is Poetry Spoken Here.
listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. We've been visiting with Chicago poet Carlos Compion. And now we'd like to play tribute to Sam Shepard, a great American writer who recently passed away. He's best known for the 44 plays he wrote, as well as for his acting and directing in Hollywood. However, he also wrote poetry, short stories, and other brief prose pieces. I want to pay tribute to him here by calling attention to these other works, sharing some brief segments with you from his book, Motel Chronicles, published by City Lights. Shepard's work tends to focus on outsiders, those on the fringe. He had an important relationship with this alcoholic father, who was exactly one of those kind of characters. Here are a few of Sam's words about his father. My dad has a picture of a Spanish senorita covered in whipped cream pinned above the sink to his kitchen wall. My dad actually does. He walked me over to it, and we both stared at it for a while. She's supposed to be naked under there, but I bet she's wearing something, he said. He gave me a tour of all of his walls. All his walls were covered with pictures, wall-to-wall magazine clippings, each picture's a point of view, like peering out through different windows into intricate landscapes. And my dad has a collection of cigarette butts in a U-Ban coffee can. I bought him a carton of old golds, but he wouldn't touch them. He kept twisting tobacco out of butts and rolling remakes over a grocery bag so as not to lose the slightest bit. He sneered at my carton of cigarettes, all red and white and ready-rolled. He spent all the food money I gave him on bourbon, filled the icebox with bottles, had his hair cut short like a World War II fighter pilot. He gleamed every time he ran his hand across the bristles, said they used to cut it short like that so their helmet would fit, showed me how the shrapnel scars still showed on the nape of his neck. My dad lives alone on the desert. He says he doesn't fit with people. Shepard wrote superb descriptions like that in straightforward language. Here's a part of a poem describing a scene in a cheap motel in a rodeo town out west. The rodeo ends. You can hear the trucks, the Elkhorn Cafe fill up with bull riders. The eagle makes a dive at a trout. Someone drops a quarter in the ice machine. The machine delivers with a thud. The swimmers leave the pool. They're talking now, but I can't make out the words. The elk move north. You can almost hear them. The grizzly goes wherever he wants. Yesterday, he ate three hikers. My kid jumps in his dreams. A gun goes off. A couple screams. My kid wakes up. That's from a cheap motel in Jackson, Wyoming. Here's another bit of excellent description. A scene from a one-page piece of prose. If you want to give it a genre label... I say you would call this uh, flash fiction, but the term wasn't used very much back in 1980s when he wrote this. Sam, the wind's been blowing for three days straight. Our best friends are breaking apart. Lovers are calling our house, trying to track each other down. The dust blows right across our land. Every door in the place keeps banging. The refrigerator slams. All the windows rattle. Coffee keeps being made. 
Typing goes on in the basement. Somebody's getting something down. The whole town's in an uproar, but only at night. These days I wonder about leaving, but I've seen myself when I leave. Already seen myself. Next door they're building a window. I plunge into books on the gold rush. One thing captures me, only one. How they buried each other in giant trees, inside a whole tree, nailed inside. Today I bought a new pistol and a new set of tires. My sister-in-law gasps on the phone, makes vomiting sounds on the phone, giggles hysterically, ecstatic over somebody's chest. My wife reads Jung for some reason, out of the blue. She usually reads Michael Murdoch, but today she reads Jung. My parents live apart, separate lives. In a flash, I almost feel I have a grip. Shepard continually writes this kind of an intense uh, description. He spent time in Hollywood with various movie projects, and he wrote about that too. Here's a poem about a scene that takes place when filming on location. Film crew's packing up to leave, and this poem says a lot, I think, about Shepard's feelings about the industry and his sympathies for the little people. He uh, runs into the stand-in for the uh, female star. When I encountered the star's stand-in as the elevator doors slid open, and I was stepping out as she was stepping in at 4 a.m., I saw she was radically stoned. I asked her, what on? She said, six Valium and white wine. Because this was our last day of shooting, so she thought she'd celebrate by bawling someone on the crew and getting zipped. Since this was her hometown and she'd be staying right here while we'd be moving on. And the agony of being just a local stand-in, left behind in a town she ached to be out of, was bearing down on her now with real force. And it made me suddenly re-ashamed of being an actor in a movie at all and provoking such stupid illusions. So I took her to my room with no designs on her body at all. And she was desperately disappointed, wanted to throw herself out my window. I said, look, it's not worth it. It's just a dumb movie. And she said, it's not as dumb as life. I think that's so good. Sam Shepard has written several books of poetry and short prose, short stories. The excerpts I've been sharing are from Motel Chronicles, published by City Lights. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this has been Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>